Wireless QoS Design, Episode 35. Welcome back, my friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets out there. We have another episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide you with real-world context around technology. I'm Michael Ziga, also known as Zig in this community, and I'm your host. Today, we are joined um, with my good uh, friend, Nick Russo, once again. Um, so just kind of jump in. Thanks c- for coming back to the show, Nick. How are you doing today? Uh, not too bad, Mike. I'm uh, not as hot as last time, but still hot. Yeah, it's still we're still in the middle of this heat wave, right? So <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it was a little earlier than last time we recorded, so it's maybe it hasn't been as hot. I know last time I was like sweating buckets on the, <laughs> this room that I'm in, and I was like, oh man, I was dying. It was pretty bad. So I almost felt like Iraq all over again. Yeah, no kidding. Maybe too extreme. So, uh, well, I, again, I appreciate you joining us today. I know you're very busy. Um, I know a lot of people are trying to get your time. Um, so today, uh, just so everyone um, hears, our, our topic is a wireless QoS design. So I'm really looking forward to this session. Um, you want to just kind of jump right in? Yeah, sure. And I think that before we talk about wireless QoS specifically, we should probably just have a quick description or discussion around QoS in general. Um, because I think there's, you know, like I, I was yesterday as I was doing the show notes, I was kind of Googling just kind of for my own entertainment, what's the purpose of QoS in IP networks, et cetera. And a lot of the descriptions I saw were just jumping right into like super detailed technologies and implementation decisions and things that I thought didn't really answer the question because the purpose of QoS needs to be something related to your business. Like the technology is just the means. So the way I've defined it here, or I've tried to is purpose of QoS is to provide the proper treatment required by an application that results in a positive user experience and business outcome. Now, I know that sounds mechanical because I just read it, but the idea here is really straightforward. What can we do in the network to ensure that specific applications are treated appropriately based on the requirements that they have? You know, voice has specific requirements around packet loss, jitter, and latency. Uh, bulk file transfers may have different application performance profiles, etc. But ultimately, we want to provide a good user experience for the user-facing applications, anything that's interactive or transactional. Uh, and the things that aren't user-facing, they still they still have a business function like backups and things like that. And we want to make sure that we apply the right settings in the network to enable those applications to do what they have to do. That's how I look at uh, QoS kind of at a, at a high level without talking about any of the technologies involved. Well, I think that's great, and I would I would say um, we have to walk before we can run, right? So before we jump jump into wireless QoS, we have to understand what QoS actually is. And my um, and I learned something. I guess maybe I should say I fell in fell into this kind of rut or legacy thought process with QoS before going down the CCDE path with you and, and others that we went with um, in our study group. Um, one of those those kind of thoughts that I had was that, you know, video and voice always have to be in the priority queue or they always have to be in the, you know, the low latency queue. And um, going through that process and uh, changed my thought process as well. So I said process twice there. But um, the intent now is, you know, your business requirements, your business constraints and drivers, and really the business outcome that you're looking to get really dictates what goes in which queue. Um, there's still a technical aspect of that that we have to meet um, depending on what the protocols are, um, will depend on what features we can enable and disable and, and so on and so forth. But the intent here is that there might be some times where video and voice aren't the most important thing in your environment. And you have to be okay with putting the most important thing that makes sense in those queues. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and I know we went through a lot of examples while we were studying a few years back around maybe in a high frequency trading environment, your uh, that, high, that, that stock data or ticker data or brokerage data, whatever it ends up being, that might have a lower latency requirement than some other things that require uh, or maybe even lower than voice, which in that case is just used for com- convert, you know, conversation between individuals that doesn't necessarily need to be high quality. Exactly. Exactly, right? You have a limited amount of bandwidth. That's where it comes down to, in my view, for QoS as a high level. You know, you have a limited amount of bandwidth, and you have to treat the, the traffic that's going and using that bandwidth the most effectively as possible based on your requirements, your business requirements. So, Yeah. Now, I think it's also good just to kind of quickly summarize what I would say is one of my favorite RFCs. It's 4594. And the reason that this one is one of my favorites is number one, it's not like an uber technical bits, flags, codes, headers, protocol on the wire RFC. It's more of a design summary. Uh, it's an informational RFC that describes the different service classes and how DiffServe is really meant to work in networks. And I think it would be useful just to very quickly cover the 12 service classes that they identify in sections three and four of that RFC. And I'm just going to kind of read through these quickly and give some basic examples because I think understanding this is going to help us understand how we design our QoS networks. And it's going to be especially interesting when we start to talk about QoS within the context of wireless networks as well. Well, let's jump in. That makes sense. Yeah, let's do it. So network control is... Uh, things like routing protocols and other traffic that holds the network together. And these are, this is traffic that is typically low bandwidth, doesn't really have any strict SLAs other than don't have packet loss. You know, it's not necessarily latency sensitive, but we need to make sure we keep that up. It's our control plane. Uh, Next, we have signaling. Typically, this is user-based signaling, like call control for telephony. Um, It's important traffic, not necessarily time sensitive, but we don't want to drop it and it does need guaranteed delivery. Operations, administration, and maintenance, or OAM. Uh, I like to think about this as any network operations or NetOps stuff like SNMP, SSH, uh, AAA traffic like Radius or TACX, NetFlow, uh, depending on your environment, maybe NTP. NTP could also technically fall in a network control depending on if you're maybe you're doing PKI and you think that NTP is a higher priority. Uh, past those three, the rest of them are kind of more user, uh, shall we say, user type flows for the most part. So one of them is telephony or voice. Obviously sensitive to latency jitter and lost. This is traffic that is oftentimes put in priority and low latency queues. But again, we, we talked about how that may not always be the case. And we broadcast video. So unidirectional inelastic video, we're talking about something maybe like uh, CCTV where I have a monitoring system and I'm just watching video. Uh, I might have some application level buffering built in so that I can tolerate a little bit of loss, but typically it's inelastic. So there's not going to be like dynamic rate shifting built into this. Compare that to multimedia conferencing, uh, which is going to have, well, actually, I shouldn't really talk about that yet. I should really talk about real-time interactive video first. This is kind of like broadcast video, except it's interactive. So if you're on telepresence or something where it's still not going to have rate shifting because maybe that's not desirable, um, but it's now interactive, kind of like interactive broadcast video in a sense. We start to get into the multimedia classification of video. So we have a conferencing, which is uh, kind of similar to telepresence, maybe something like Cisco's WebEx, where we're talking over this uh, over a video session, but it can dynamically rate shift. So the quality of the video increases or decreases beyond what the network or based on what the network has. Sometimes that's desirable. And then multimedia streaming, where we're just downloading video, kind of video on demand, YouTube, Netflix, things like that. Then on to the data classes, transactional data, sometimes called low latency data, I like to think about these as interactive foreground applications. So I'm on a website, I'm navigating the website, I'm doing downloads, I'm interacting with a system, 
things like that. Users are expecting a response from a from a system. Uh, bulk data or high throughput data is non-interactive background things like a job that you submitted to do a, da- a database uh, backup or some kind of other uh, a database sync or anything like that. And then best effort. And we haven't talked a lot. We don't really talk about best effort a lot, but I think what a lot of people don't understand about best effort is the word best. Best effort means you are giving it your best effort. Um, it's not a worst effort cue. Uh, so the, what I'm saying is a lot of your traffic, probably about 25%, is going to fall into the best effort queue, typically at least 25%. Yeah. These are all the applications that you're not explicitly classifying, but you do care about them and you do want to give them some treatment. Uh, and then scavenger. This is your explicitly marked down traffic. So video games, peer-to-peer traffic, maybe uh, web surfing uh, after hours and things like that. Those all may fit into the scavenger queue. So scavenger queue is kind of like worst effort. I know a lot of organizations get confused about best effort. They think, oh, well, zero, DSCP zero is the worst number. Therefore, it's the worst traffic. That's actually not true. So it's important that we, yeah, it's important that we understand the difference between best effort and scavenger here. Uh, and that actually comes into play when we talk about uh, 802.11e uh, pretty soon with this wireless QoS coming up next. Well, uh, first off, I appreciate the rundown of all the different uh, 12 queues there for RFC 4594. Uh, we've spent a lot of time with that RFC in the past. I would uh, scavenger crew. I have a use case real quick. Um, if I think we have time. So I'm just going to throw it out there. So I was at an organization and um, they decided to do a, um, a client backup solution. Um, to backup files and user data on client computers. So think of, you know, Windows, Macs, just client devices in an organization. And then think of, you know, well, we want to backup that solution. And they did a cloud offering of that backup solution. So we actually ended up having to put that traffic in the scavenger class. Um, because it was when they rolled it out, it actually took up all bandwidth in the organization and actually killed production traffic and uh, production... Um, applications just died and then we had to troubleshoot figure out what it was found out the help desk will launch this this backup application and we're like okay well you're killing the network we we need to contain this put in the scavenger queue um rate limit it whatever you want to call it and then uh, and let them kind of do it only in that certain threshold so yeah and i think another good example is at least in uh some of the environments where i worked where maybe you have some business you know in general, again, being very generic here, you have some uh, business critical or mission traffic that falls into one of the previous queues, and maybe you have some other traffic, um, you know, kind of unidentified traffic that's best effort. Uh, maybe if you're also providing internet transport, so for example, just general internet access for users who uh, maybe these users do 100% of their actual work uh, in a private data center, and the only time they go out to the internet is for uh, having fun, for lack of a better term. And in that case, the, all the internet traffic could be considered scavenger. And that's just another example, again, a little bit maybe unrealistic for many environments, but that's an example I've used in production for scavenger as well. Yeah, it goes back to the business requirements. You know, again, it goes back to that. So if internet is not something that's a business requirement, then it might fit in the scavenger class. So. Yep, exactly. Yep. And then I'm talking about wireless QoS. We'll go through this a little bit, uh, hopefully more quickly. Um, we talk about 802.11e, and this was a specification that started to adopt the physical layer changes that would need to occur in order to do QoS and wireless networks. And the Wi-Fi adopted these and called it wireless multimedia or WMM. And within this specification, we kind of took four main access categories, call it background, which is equivalent to scavenger, uh, best effort, video and voice. 
Uh, and then within each access category, there are two user priority or UP values. And the UP is a three-bit QoS value. So it's similar to class of service or cause in an Ethernet network. And you get zero uh, values from zero to seven. So, you know, three bits there. And the way they're sorted is a little bit interesting. So in the background access class, the values one and two are placed there. And one is for background traffic and two is a spare. So two isn't really officially mapped to anything today. Uh, in the best effort access class, we have zero and three. And zero is best effort and three is what they call excellent effort. Now, again, zero and three are treated exactly the same over a wireless LAN, just like one and two, for example. They're in the same access category. But we're going to see pretty soon why these different UP values might have an impact on the wired network. So just keep in mind that even though there are multiple UP values in an access category or access class, I think the official word is access category, but you get the point. It doesn't really matter. Um, the AP may treat that differently. In the video access category, we have control load is four. So control load um, traffic and then video, which is five. And then in the voice class, we've got voice, which is six and network control, which is seven. So again, there's this thing called network control in the voice access category and this thing called control load in the video category. One thing I like about the specification is that the writers of it, they didn't get wrapped around the axle on naming. Like, who cares? I mean, I, I get that network control and voice are different, but in the interest of keeping things simple, they had a smaller number of access categories with a couple different UP values in each, uh, and they didn't get wrapped around uh, too much differentiation. So I'm actually pretty happy that it, that it worked out simply like that. Now, with wireless QoS, one of the big differences, now that we've covered kind of the values, I think one of the one of the most important things or the most important thing is trying to reduce the likelihood of collisions for that high priority traffic. And when I say collisions, we're talking about half duplex networks like being connected to an Ethernet hub where the media is, is shared and you can typically only one person can typically talk at a time uh, and one station can only talk or listen at once. Now, of course, there are some enhancements with MIMO and, and some of the 802AX stuff that we can talk about maybe in another podcast, but let's try to understand the basics before we uh, jump to the newest tech to solve all yeah, our problems yeah. here. Baby steps, right? Baby steps. Yeah, baby steps, yeah. So the idea is if we have less collisions when we send our high-priority traffic, we'll have less retransmissions and better performance overall. And that's really what we want. Um, does that make sense so far, Mike? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So you called it out. I mean, Wi-Fi traffic, Wi-Fi is still half duplex, and that is a limiting factor. Um, and you really have to design a design for it accordingly based on your applications going over Wi-Fi. Um, and if you don't, then you could very well have issues. So, And I think the next thing, and I realize it's, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about topics that all seem different, but again, they're going to get pieced together here in just a couple minutes. Um, now to talk about how does the wireless, you know, media access actually work over wireless. We Today, typically we see a distributed coordination function or DCF. So this isn't like a an AP commands different nodes when to talk. That would be a, a point coordination function, which we don't often see. But in this DCF model, typically the way it works is every node has to wait a specific amount of time before sending, which is our uh, interframe spacing, DCF interframe spacing or DIFS. So we're going to wait this time period. But if everyone waits the same time period to talk, like for example, um, you know we're all in a room together and there's silence on the phone and we all wait exactly one second to talk and we all start talking at the same time, then we back off for a second and then we start again and we're in this kind of constant loop of talking on each other. 
the reason, the way we avoid this is by setting a random back off timer in addition to the DIFS so that someone will wait a little longer. I know, of course, it's a random number, so someone will win and someone will lose. And then over time, everyone will get their chance to talk with fewer uh, collisions on the air. Now, the reason we, the, how do we know a collision occurred? Well, if I send traffic and I don't get an acknowledgement, I'm going to increase that random back off timer. So effectively, I have this contention window with a minimum and a maximum number. So CW min and max. I'm going to pick a random number from a larger range, which increases the probability that I'm going to choose a larger number. So if my CW window started off between zero and seven time slots, whatever whatever the length of a time slot is, I think it's like nine microseconds, but that's irrelevant. Maybe it goes from zero to seven up to zero to 15. And then if there's another collision, then I pick a number zero to 31, et cetera. And that CW max keeps getting larger and larger as I keep having collisions on the network. I was going to say the main problem with this is that if everyone waits the same amount of time and everyone picks the same random timers, how do you achieve differentiation between different applications? And the answer is you don't. And that's one of the big problems with DIFS by itself. You had something to say, Mike? Oh, I was just saying that makes perfect sense to me. It's, uh, it seems very similar to some of the stuff we had in half duplex uh, uh, wired uh, years ago. You know, I mean, I don't think anyone at this day and age, most people don't remember half duplex on the wired side. So, Sure. Yeah, it's still relevant. A lot of the concepts are relevant over wireless. So in 11E, what was proposed was we can change the way DIFS works, and we're going to call it arbitrated IFS or AIFS. So by arbitrated, what we're really saying is that we're going to change that we're going to bend the rules a little bit for certain kinds of traffic. So for the higher priority access categories, remember there's four, background, best effort, voice and video. The higher priority ones like voice and video, they're going to have a smaller AIFS waiting period. So if DIFS was 10, I'm just making up a number, then the voice and the video might be like two or three. Uh, the best effort might be eight. And the background might be 12, something like that. So the initial weight is going to be cut down so that it gives voice and video a better advantage of winning. We're also going to modify the contention window thresholds. So for example, voice might have a small small AIFS so that it only, so its default wait time is small, but it also has a very small tight contention window, maybe from zero to seven or zero to three time slots, whatever. Video might be similar with a similar AIFS that's small and a relatively small, but perhaps bigger than voice contention window. As we go down the access class priority list, that AIFS value will grow and the contention window will, the, the, the range between minimum and maximum will also grow. So that in addition to having to wait longer at a minimum, so the AIFS is like your minimum wait time plus whatever random back off timer you choose, uh, as you go down the access categories, your chances of being able to send get worse and worse, which is exactly what we want because we don't want those cues to contend with voice and video. But at the same time, the randomness avoids collisions and it still allows those lower priority applications to get some traffic through because we don't want to completely starve them. This isn't priority queuing. Um, we still want to give them some access to the media, but not more than the other low latency sensitive applications need. So that's kind of the high-level summary of how AI, AIFS and the new contention window timers work together. Does that make sense so far, Mike? Yeah, yeah. So again, I'm just going to try to summarize in my own words, I guess. So a higher priority class will be able to talk um, quicker, I guess, and th theoretically faster than a lower priority class. Yeah, it's kind of like, it'd be kind of like saying if we're all on a teleconference together, uh, maybe your manager... 
you know, when someone's finished speaking, everyone has a rule where they have to wait at least two seconds to speak, but your manager only has to wait one second to speak. So if he has something to say, he'll generally get to go first. That's kind of, you know, a, a simplified. That's a perfect uh, analogy right there. So, and it makes sense. I mean, we have to, I mean, because again, it's not necessarily a priority queue, but we have to determine some factor to prioritize who can, what application can talk. Okay. Yep. And then the, the last enhancement is called TX opportunity or TXOP. And this is kind of like a batch mode for sending traffic. So typically with wireless lands, you send one packet or one uh, wireless frame, you get an acknowledgement for it. And you do this one by one. Um, that can be pretty, you know, you, and you, you know, for every frame, you have to go through the same AIFS cycle each time. It would be better if we could say, okay, I'm going to give you access to the media for a long period of time, maybe a couple milliseconds, which again, in wireless land, that's an eternity. And I'm going to let you send a whole bunch of traffic during that time. Uh, and no one else is going to try to access the media during it. So we'll have less contention and we'll also allow your application to perform better. I would say that for video, this is probably the most important, knowing that video has the longest or the largest TX opportunity of all the access categories so that you're able to send big bursts of traffic at once. And maybe your video application has a couple seconds of buffering. So it grabs all that traffic, buffers it for a few seconds. And then when your video client can access the wireless media again, it sends another couple seconds of video traffic, etc. So you end up with a smooth video with relatively small amount of traffic buffered. Meanwhile, all your other applications are getting access to the media in those couple seconds in between the video bursts. And uh, it's from my limited understanding uh, or limited um, hands-on with video over wireless LAN is that TX opportunity tends to be one of the biggest uh, advantages or multipliers out of all these enhancements, especially when it comes to video transport. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so this goes kind of, this kind of ducktails into like another possible podcast in the future or a couple, because you're talking about more like Wi-Fi design perspective where you're talking like a, a high demand a Wi-Fi design or a high density Wi-Fi design. And then in some cases when you combine them, um, so I've done some things in the past for high density and I want people to think like, think of like a theme park um, or a sports stadium where you have a lot of people and they want to use Wi-Fi, but they're, they're not, their demand may not be heavy, right? It may not be a lot of bandwidth. They might be just trying to go to Facebook or Twitter or this, you know, social media site. Um, so there, there's just a lot of people and a lot of devices in that, that space. Whereas a high demand is going to be something like maybe um, K through 12 or a higher education where their, their instructing methodology is to stream video and it's unicast video. It's not multicast video and the resolution is, is 4k or higher. Now in my experience, 4k video is 13 megs of uh, bandwidth. So if you do that math and you have like 20 kids in a, in a class or most, most higher eds have a lot more kids in a class. So, or students, if you do a hundred kids in a class, that's a lot of bandwidth being taken up for a unicast video stream. Um, but hopefully you get an idea of how the high demand could be. And when you start merging these together, which I am actually seeing personally, where I am seeing like a high demand, high density. Um, and most of these are happening in higher education today from my perspective with like virtual reality and augmented reality, which are, high, high bandwidth utilization applications. Um, it, it, it gets uh, to a point where your density and demand uh, requirements are getting exponentially higher. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mike. I think I think when you start to look at the exact demand requirements for the video stuff, this WMM st that this all this WMM QoS stuff, it really becomes a requirement. And the nice thing is that, you know, starting from 11N, which is, I don't know, probably 10 years, 10 or 11 years old now, 
we generally have uh, it's generally supported on all modern access points. So shouldn't be too much of an issue to have this kind of by default. And the nice thing is that, you know, sometimes you don't need to think about it too much. But what we're about to get into is that you actually do need to think about it, especially as it comes to connecting into your wired network. Yeah. So before we jump right in, though, I want to make this one comment. So sorry for cutting you off, Nick, for a minute there. But I want to make this... I want everyone that's listening to understand that this is a huge, huge deal. This isn't something that you should glaze over on. This isn't something that you should walk away and not get something out of. I mean, um, for the most part, I touch only Wi-Fi networks almost on a daily basis now. Or we're doing high-level designs for Wi-Fi networks because people are going away from wired networks. They're using the wired networks just to connect their access points. And very minimum wired ports getting pushed anywhere. Um, and now you're doing full Wi-Fi designs for, for the organization. Um, and, and while some vent, uh, verticals might not go fully that route, like there might be some governance, like if we talk about like government or... Um, some sort of requirements that that kind of push that further back or further longer into the the evolution phase of that organization, but it's happening. So you know, this next part that we're going to talk about are some of the kind of things that we as engineers should definitely know. Yeah, I think I think this is important too, and it was actually pretty surprising to me when I first was going through it and trying to understand how it all worked. So. I look at it as having four legs, or at least at a high level. So again, I'm going to assume that you have a wireless line controller of some vendor flavor. There's some kind of encapsulation from that wireless line controller down to the APs. And again, I'm just going to use the term CAPWAP here, um, being a Cisco guy and the fact that it's just convenient to say CAPWAP as we go through this. No, that's fine. That makes sense. Yeah, if we're just thinking about a flow, let's say it originates um, from the upstream and it goes to the downstream and back. So maybe I have, uh, you know, a, a... a station up the top that needs to talk down to a wireless client. So that packet that comes into the wireless line controller on the LAN side, it's going to have some DSCP value on it. When it hits the wireless LAN controller, the, the WILC is going to wrap it up inside of CAPWAP and it's going to copy that inner DSCP to the outer DSCP, generally one for one. The only exception is that network control traffic is going to have some specific limitations depending on your vendor. And again, I don't want this to be a a Cisco conversation, but in general, the DSCP is going to get copied over. The traffic is going to move through your campus network inside of CAPWAP with the original DSCP, again, because it got copied from inside to outside. So downstream QoS over wired, typically not a big issue. It's going to hit your access point. Access point is going to look, again, at least talking about Cisco gear, it'll look at the outermost CAPWAP DSCP. So if your DSCP got mutated somewhere in the campus, that's going to influence the downstream UP value over wireless LAN. But if we assume that didn't happen, that DSCP value will be mapped into UP at the access point and sent down into the network, into the wireless network. So that's still step one, right? Just so... Yeah. Okay. No, the second one was... One. Yeah, sorry. That second one was the second step there. So the U, uh, yeah, so the, the first step is from the WILC to the access point inside CAPWAP. The second step is from the access point takes it out of CAPWAP and sends it down into wireless with a UP value that is derived from the outside CAPWAP header, not the not the inner DSCP. So basically, if your CAPWAP DSCP changed along the path, that will influence your downstream UP. So just be aware of that. Uh, the third step is now the client has to respond. And the interesting thing about how the client responds, and we'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about new RFCs and we go through our fun example, is that the client... DSCP may or may not influence what the UP value is. But typically, when the client responds, it'll have some DSCP on the IP packet and a UP value over the wireless LAN. 
That's the third step. And that's going to go out over wireless and that UP value is going to determine the AIFS and the TX opportunity and the, the contention window timers and all that kind of stuff we just talked about. When the AP receives it, it's going to map that into another, uh, in, you know, it's going to put it inside a CapWap. It's going to get the CapWap DSCP from the UP value that came in from the client. So if the client sends up a specific UP value, the AP needs to think, well, what value should I use on the CapWap tunnel? Now, some vendor equipment allows you to trust DSCP and use that as your single source of truth, which is generally desirable, and we'll talk about why later. But in general, the AP is going to look at your UP and send that up over the campus network upstream back to the wireless LAN controller. When the WLC receives it, it just decapsulates the packet and the inner DSCP is preserved. So it's really just tunneling, if you think about it, between the AP and the wireless LAN controller. But there's a little bit of magic that happens with the UP value at the access point. Because that UP value upstream can determine what the CapWAP DSCP is going to be up to the wireless LAN controller. I think this is probably best explained with an example. Uh, and my specific example, I did this test about a year ago. And it was a VOIP call, or at least a simulation. It was really just ping traffic with a DSCP set. But I pinged down from the top side of the network above the wireless LAN controller down to my Apple iPhone 6. Uh, that's the phone I had at the time. <laughs> So the white, yeah, the wired phone. So I, and I, you know, I call it the wired phone, but if we just think about an actual phone, I have a phone on my campus, it's a wired phone and I send one packet, which is a VOIP packet with DSCP EF. So expedited forwarding is in the voice class with a value of 46. I know we didn't talk about the DSCP values earlier, cause that would be just too much to talk about. But so the voice is marked correctly. Just think of that that way. So here's how I look at the steps. If we follow our procedure that we just talked through, we're going to have the traffic from the phone is going to enter the wireless LAN controller with this DSCP of EF, and it's going to be encapsulated inside of CapWeb. That's what we want. Now we're going to have that CapWeb DSCP is going to be copied. So that EF that came in on the original VOIP packet is going to be copied to the outside CapWeb header, and that traffic is going to be routed down to the access point. So that downstream flow across your campus inside CapWeb, the QoS should work correctly. Okay, so far so good. The AP is going to receive this CapWeb DSCP with EF on the outside, assuming it wasn't remarked in the transit path, and this will map into UP6. Remember that 6 over wireless is for voice traffic, not five. Five is for video. So UP6 is what we're going to use for voice across the wireless networks. Okay, that's good. So from the wired phone down to the iPhone, everything worked great. Now on the upstream direction, on a cipher trace, what I observed is that the iPhone 6 sent traffic up to the AP with a UP of five. So asymmetric. Interesting. Five is used for video traffic. So why did Apple do that? My uh, limited research into this and asking a few questions is Apple has their FaceTime application. I'm sure most of us are familiar with it. It's an interactive video application. And that is one of their flagship products that they use for people communicating. And as the manufacturer of the iPhone and other Apple products, Apple has determined that FaceTime will get UP6. So FaceTime will get better access to the wireless media than regular VOIP traffic. They have a business driver for that. And it kind of ties into our earlier conversation is that individual companies will choose which applications get which values based on their own business needs. And this is one example where I was surprised to see that VOIP did not get voice treatment over wireless LAN. So now we've got this voice traffic heading up to the campus network with the UPF5. Again, it had a worse access to the wireless network. But then when it hits the AP, another undesirable effect. 
Assuming that AP is trusting that UP value, it's going to take a UP of five and it's going to encapsulate that traffic inside of CapWap. But rather than give it a DSCP of EF, which, which is voice, and that's what we should give it, we're actually going to give it AF31. Um, and again, some, there's some Cisco assumptions behind the scenes here, but in general, we're going to give it a video marking because it looks like video if we look at the UP value. So now the, the leg of traffic from the AP up to the will see is going to be marked as video, and it's going to look like an upstream video flow. Now, when the, when the will see finally gets it, it's going to decapsulate the packet, and it's going to come out the other end uh, as regular VOIP with the proper EF marking, because again, that EF marking got tunneled through. But there were two kind of problems here. The upstream from the client to the AP used UP5, which weakened its access to the wireless media and made it, uh, you know, and subjects it to being worse quality voice than maybe an Android phone or something. And over the campus network from the AP to the will see, we got treated as video during that whole path as well. So those are both not, not good methods. Um, if we can trust DSCP in the, on the wireless LAN, or sorry, not the wireless LAN, but on the, on the AP or the wireless LAN controller, we can tell the AP, you know, when you receive that wireless packet in, ignore the UP value and just copy the DSCP from the IP packet to the outer DSCP of the CapWAP tunnel. That's generally the better strategy. Uh, and I know that's been relative recently added to some Cisco gear. I'm sure under other vendors supported as well. Uh, and it's my personal recommendation to use DSCP as that single source of truth. I think that's going to be the best method. This still doesn't answer a lot of the questions around uh, what about in the wireless network. So, for example, if I didn't do that trust DSCP and I had that tr that upstream voice traffic, it looks like video over wireless and it also looks like video over campus, the voice quality of that client might be pretty bad. But even if I trust DSCP, I still look like video traffic over the wireless LAN. That's not something that's easily fixed with vendor networking equipment. It would need to be addressed at a lower level, and we'll talk about how that works next, or in a little while at least. Um, so just be aware that you know if you have my Android clients have great voice quality and my iPhone clients have bad voice quality, and if you trust DSCP, don't assume that the voice quality of Apple is going to match Android at that point because, again, you're still contending over the wireless network with the wrong marking. You might see a, a significant improvement if you have contention in your wired network, for example, congestion or, or anything like that around uh, video traffic. Maybe by putting it in the proper voice queue, it gets better treatment, but it might still be worse than Android because of the wireless media access problems associated with video versus voice. So does that make sense, Mike? I know that was like a lot of words, but I'm trying to paint a clear example of how this works and why it's important. No, I think it makes perfect sense. Um, the process you went through makes sense to me, and I think it, it was pretty clear, um, trying to pretend like I'm a, I'm a listener here with basic Wi-Fi knowledge. Um, and then uh, furthermore, I, I actually think it's amazing because I never thought of this, and it makes sense that the vendor's product, like the, the iPhone specifically, would be prioritizing its FaceTime application over, you know, uh, uh, VOIP, you know, other application, whatever. In this case, you were, I think, using just uh, ICMP traffic with a different value of your DSCP value, right? I don't know what you were doing on the, the client end. Yeah, basically the way I tested this with the different clients is I just set up a bunch of probes from my station at the top end and every probe had a different DSCP. So I'd basically send a bunch of pings to the phone with different DSCPs and then just basically look at the encapsulation and look at the markings yeah. to, you know, basically instead of looking at documentation about what 
Apple and what Cisco say the markings should be, if I just test it myself and then through observation, identify what they actually are, uh, those are all in my test results that I wanted to capture. And that's how I was able to reveal some of these interesting inconsistencies between different uh, products. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's uh, shines the light on some of these end devices. I mean, so historically, end devices aren't the same depending on, like, from vendor to vendor for the other technologies. So if you're doing like network access control, uh, whatever solution, you know, you have to do things differently depending on the, the end device. If it's, uh, you know, an Apple device or if it's a Windows device or a Chromebook or this or that, you have to do things differently. Well, I wouldn't have thought intuitively enough that the QoS would have been handled differently depending on the, the device, but to make sense. So this goes into maybe a follow on kind of discussion about is there, you know, are, is there any kind of reference guides or RFCs for, for wireless QoS, you know, because if vendors aren't following a standard today, you know, maybe we should be forcing them to follow a standard in the future. Yeah, so RFC 8325 just came out, and I've only skimmed it. So it came out in February of this year, so 2018. So it's about, what, four months old now, five? So it's pretty fresh. Um, that That's good because it, it means we've addressed the problem, but I find it unlikely that there are a lot of there's a lot of compliance out there with this new specification today. I think that over the next year or so, we'll start to see it more, which is exciting because this RFC is meant to standardize for specific app or for specific DSCPs being originated from a phone for a given application, your UP markings should follow a standard as well. Um, and I think that's really going to be valuable because then we'll see a lot more consistency both in the wireless access and we won't have to do vendor specific nerd knobs at the WILC and the AP to trust different values. And it'll just be a generally cleaner solution. So no, I think you're right on. So I have a question real quick. Um, it might get a little technical. I don't mean to be, but so it, you have a uh, this this process that you went through and showed us how the the return traffic, um, the outer DCP value is 34, um, where the inner is EF. So my question um, with 34, which is AF 41, just so people if they don't know that by heart, um, what if an organization isn't running QoS for video? Yeah, so the, the thing that's interesting is that the the workarounds for this kind of problem, like if you're not if you don't have any QoS or video at all, like let's just say that you work in an organization that has maybe a very simple QoS strategy and you say, okay, my voice traffic gets priority, uh, my control plane gets uh, a bandwidth reservation and everything else is best effort. Let's just say that's Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Three queues in the campus. Yeah. In that case, then your uh, video that, that upstream voice traffic is gonna be treated just like your best effort. So just like any other video would be best effort. And that could be potentially pretty damaging. Um, you know, the ways the ways to try to fix that, none of them are really good because again, your AP is talking to the wireless line controller. So all your traffic's inside of a tunnel. Uh, it's going between two endpoints. You really, you know, if you're trying to fix this in the network, like for example, if you're at the switch trying to fix this, it could be quite difficult. The good news though, in that case, um, <clears throat> let's assume that you're in a network that doesn't have a lot of video. Like let's let's say that you're in a network that you know the whole, maybe Mike the, the reason we don't have QoS for video is because maybe we don't have video, yeah. maybe we're in an environment that just has some VoIP and some web browsing. Well, then we know for sure that AF34 in this case it would be Apple voice traffic. So we have a couple choices. One, we could just add 34 to the voice queue because we know it's voice because we don't have video. Um, the other option is we could just mutate that value, statically change 34 to 46 at the switch port on the switch level so that the outer DSCP across the campus is correct. 
Um, we might even be able to do something with packet size matching. So for example, if, there, if your switch is advanced, you could say, you know, um, I know my video packets are bigger because I'm packing more into each packet, but my voice packets are typically small because they only carry a small sampling of voice, typically like 20 milliseconds. So I can measure, you know, maybe maybe after CapWap encapsulation, my packets are 130 bytes exactly every time. Well, maybe I can just say any packet that's AF or sorry, uh, any packet that's AF41 and 130 bytes, I'm going to take a guess that that's voice and I'm going to remark it. Now, there might be some false positives. You might get a small video packet that's 130 bytes, but the occasional video packet may not break your system, and that might be an overall better answer. Of course, that's that adds complexity, and it's a little bit hard to manage. Uh, certainly a leap of faith assumption, but it may work for your environment. Um, if you've got more advanced switches and you're not using any encryption on your CapWap, so your data plane is not encrypted, for example, DPI or deep packet inspection to do maybe look inside that packet, find the inner DSCP, and then copy it to the outer DSCP. Uh, I've personally never seen that. That's more of a theoretical solution, but I'm confident that it would work if you had a hardware that could support it. Um, the other option is maybe instead of tunneling all the traffic back to the controller, you just have a local drop-off point so your AP doesn't cap-wab encapsulate things back to the WILSI. It just dumps it off right to the switch, and then your switch can just do remarking on the traffic as usual. Problem with that, of course, is mobility becomes a challenge. Um, there's a you know IP address management becomes a challenge. That's why we have CapWap in the first place to tunnel traffic back to a main point rather than have a more distributed deployment. Um, so I actually haven't seen that used as a specific QoS workaround, but that design is valid in some other cases. So there are a couple things you can do to try to work around that problem, and I tried to lay out a couple of those options. None of them are really great. Uh, the great option, of course, is implementing this new RFC 8325 once it comes out. And hopefully when everyone implements it, the world is a better place and we don't need this podcast anymore. But until then... Hey. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I, I think you're right. The next steps to, for people, vendors specifically, to, to implement the RFC. Um, and you know the number by heart, 8325. I always have to keep looking it up still. Um, but I, I think... It's it takes time for vendors to implement an RFC. So I mean, I think realistically, we're looking at least a couple of years before we're going to see devices that actually adhere to the standard. Um, so I, I you know I think this is important for people to understand that you know if you start having voice issues um, between devices that are mobile devices. Um, or other vendor hardware, that it might not be something within your environment that's causing that issue. Yeah, and I think this I think this issue would probably be exacerbated in BYOD deployments. And the reason I say that is because, you know, suppose that everyone got issued a corporate Android phone and that's all they use. Well, maybe that maybe that Android phone behaves just like Apple and maybe there's some specific application that gets a different marking. You know, or let me, let's put it this way. If the app, if that Android phone is uh, doing something similar to Apple, maybe it's setting voice as UP5 then everyone would be equally negatively affected. Not to say that that's good, but it would at least be consistently bad. Um, it's harder when everyone shows up with a different device. And on my website, and I know we got links in the show notes, I tested, I don't know, four or five, six different phones and all different kinds of manufacturers, different operating systems, all kinds of different things. And every single phone was different wow. in at least one DSCP uh, category there. So if I had BYOD and I had all these different phone manufacturers and, you know, if it's BYOD, so people have different versions of code, like some people update their phones right away when they get the pop-up that says update code. Some people defer it. 
that can change as well, change how the behavior works. So you'll have a completely potentially inconsistent QoS policy. And as BYOD becomes more popular and wireless density continues to rise, um, this becomes a larger issue and requires, you know, just some looking at. Now, again, I, can, I can't stress it enough. If you're able to trust DSCP on your access points, you absolutely should, because then you'll look at the inner DSCP when the traffic comes upstream, you'll ignore the UP value at the access point, copy that inner DSCP to the CapWeb DSCP for upstream transport, and your wired campus network will be fat, dumb, and happy. Problem, again, is that over the wireless land, this is what the RFC is trying to address, is that if manufacturers and developers of uh, consumer products like phones continue to choose their own UP values, then access to the media starts to become a little bit unfair, and you'll see different applications or different classes of traffic behaving differently on different devices, even when those two devices are right next to each other and they have the same signal strength and all the other RF characteristics are the same. And they're both connected at the same rate. You might see significantly different application performance. So it can be pretty difficult to investigate all these things. That's why I always recommend if you have a large wireless LAN deployment, put some monitor APs out there just to be able to do sniffing and and other things like that. Um, Because you may want to do this on an occasional basis just to make sure that your traffic is being marked correctly. Because when you're trying to troubleshoot application issues... I'll be the first to say that QoS is not the first thing people think of. Typically with wireless, they're out there troubleshooting uh, RSSI and coverage and looking at heat maps. And that's all important. That's all critical, actually. Uh, but the QoS at the higher levels in the network past the layer one, once you've identif- once you've isolated out all the RF problems and you come to this point, it's important to understand that you're able to check the QoS and make sure you're not having application problems you know, based on specific business drivers from a consumer equipment manufacturer. I think you said it well. Um, honestly, I think you did. Um, uh, for for VoIP sessions or VoIP call issues, I usually think it's a, like a network issue, like one of the subnets isn't not reachable from the other subnet. But I mean, it could very well be, um, depending on your end device, a BYOD device, it could very well be something with that manufacturer's QoS setting. So um, I believe um, we, we're going to have some pictures in the show notes, right, of this process that you went through, the Wireshark process, uh, uh, packet captures. Um, we're going to have links to all of this stuff uh, to your site, um, the job aid that you did for the WLNP caps, your, your test results matrix, uh, QS summary for RFC 4594. Um, and really the intent here is to save everyone else some time and the hassle that, that kind of you went through, right? That's exactly the point. You know, I, I feel like, you know, if I'm going to spend time and because I spent weeks on all this testing. Yeah, you did. I remember. Phones and do it. I'm, I'm running, a, literally speed walking around my house trying to do roams and all kinds of fun stuff. And I decided there's no value in me doing all that work and just leaving it on my local server here and putting it up in AWS and not sharing it. So I wanted to make that available. Uh, and the screenshots that I took was I went into my own captures and I, I took one packet and I followed its journey from outside that we'll see down through the CapWap tunnel, then down through the access point, down to the iPhone, and then all the way back. And the four screenshots basically tell that story from the first leg from the we'll see to the AP inside of CapWap. And you can see the inner DSCP and the CapWap DSCP. The second leg, which is AP down to the client, where you can see the inner DSCP and the UP. Then where it gets interesting, the third step from the client up to the access point, where you're going to see the inner DSCP at 40, uh, 46, but the UP at 5, and then the final leg, which shows the problem in the wireless network, is that UPF5 gets translated into AF41, but the inner DSCP is still EF. 
So that transport from AP up to Wellsea would get treated like video. And I wanted to show that clearly in the captures. And my 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 uh, iPhone Mac address is in there, so please don't like steal it and do a bunch of illegal <laughs> stuff with my iPhone Mac. But I'm not too worried about that. Um, but you'll, you'll clearly see all the captures there. And I would encourage people who found the show interesting. Maybe it was a little bit hard to follow because visually you just haven't done it before. If you go through the captures and look at the, you know, between the show notes and dig into the captures, I think it'll become very apparent uh, what this problem is. Um, and I'll also mention another thing we can put in the show notes, Mike, is uh, Robert Barton. He's an engineer at Cisco. He does a, a wireless QoS Cisco live session every year, and it's always awesome. Um, and he covers a lot of this in detail, plus a lot of the new stuff. You know, he covers this particular problem as well, but I wanted to help kind of evangelize it and make sure that it gets to a broader audience because I think it's not well understood and not well known. So I would definitely recommend people check that out too. And by the way, all this stuff is free. So you can just download it and look at it at your leisure. Exactly. It's all free. It's free resources. This is what Nick does. Um, and he does a great job at it. I do remember like last year when you were spending a couple of weeks going through all this. And I, I think we, we talked for a minute and then it was like you were back to testing stuff um, and you were going full full at it. So um, I, I'm glad to get more context around what you had tested. I didn't realize some of these limitations, honestly, with uh, the, the end devices that we have today. Um, do you have any last minute kind of whiz- words of wisdom like usual for, for the, the audience today? No, I don't think so. I think it's really just test everything out, do your own captures, understand how it works in your network. And if you're using BYOD today, I would recommend that you do some sniffs. Again, get your own capture, uh, captures. See if you can identify any inconsistencies in your network and make the appropriate adjustments, especially if you're having device-specific or application-specific problems, and maybe you've had a hard time nailing it down, I would say check your wireless LAN first. And if you've already identified all your RF potential issues like coverage and RSSI issues, uh, take a look at some of the QoS stuff and you may find something there. Outstanding. And then obviously, last thing, where, where can the, the listeners find you on the interweb? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at NickRusso42518 uh, and also my website, njrusmc.net. Well, Nick, as always, I appreciate our discussions and our time together. Um, thanks for taking the time out of your day uh, to talk with me and, and talk with our listeners. I really appreciate it. All right, sure thing, Mike. Uh, happy to happy to chat with you and looking forward to next time. Awesome, man. Hey, friends. Hopefully you enjoyed the discussion with uh, Mr. Nick Russo. He is a rock star, isn't he? Um, that that wind wireless QoS design session that we had, uh, that discussion that we just had was outstanding. And um, every time uh, Nick gets on the, the microphone uh, on the session with, with me, I just love it. Um, he really is setting the bar very high uh, with everything that, that he does. So I'd love to partner up with him and get some of this content out for you. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Let us know. It'd be good, I think, to just kind of send us a quick little message on uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook. You can always email at feedback uh, feedback at zigbits.tech. And just kind of let us know um, if you're liking what, what Nick and I had did, did today, what we have been doing the last few episodes here and there. We've done about three different episodes with Nick in the last two or three months. So we're doing some great content for everyone. Before we end today's episode, uh, I want to bring uh, some light towards um, something new that, that I'm doing. Like all of us in this world, uh, I'm sure you have dreams and goals that you want to accomplish in life. Things that, that you maybe 
aren't that easy to accomplish, but you're, you're looking towards accomplishing. Perfect example would be like uh, maybe some fitness goals, maybe um, some financial goals, maybe some certification goals in the IT field, like a CCIE or CCDE or CISSP. Those are some great, great examples of goals, right? But maybe you're hitting some barriers in life. Maybe you're not able to commit to some of these goals for some reason. Maybe you're hitting some what I would call limiting beliefs. Um, some of these limiting beliefs that I've had in life are lack of motivation, procrastination, negativity, self-doubt, and fear of failing. Fear of failing being a pretty big one for me. Um, and then also on the fear side, the fear of making the wrong decision. So those two, fear of failing and fear of making the wrong decisions are really big ones for me personally because not knowing which decision to make out of a set of decisions. So let's say you have this option A, B, and C, but you don't know which one to choose. So because you don't know which one to choose, you make no decision. And then a day goes by, a week goes by, a month goes by, and maybe even a year goes by and you make no progress towards your goals because you made no decision. The other aspect, and my wife gets me on this all the time, is you just can't find the time to accomplish your goals. That, that your excuse is there's not enough time to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish in life. And that is a limiting belief because you make the time for the things that are the most important things in your life. And you don't make the time for the things you don't want to do in life. And if any of this, any of this at all resonates with you, then keep listening. Because I promise you, we're going we're to address these. We are going to, to resolve these and get you to breaking down your barriers. Maybe you are struggling to identify your goals. Maybe you don't even know what your goals are. And that's my friend, is where I can help you with too. So I can help you with identifying your goals. I can help you with making sure you're meeting your goals and making sure you're, you're living your dream, living your dream in life every day, every single day. I want to make sure that I, I, I'm very transparent and very clear, right? I have achieved every goal in my life that I've set out to achieve. I am living my dream every single day. But I will say achieving all of the goals in my life wasn't easy. It's not all glitter and rainbows and unicorns and happiness. There were tons of failure. There were tons of barriers in my life towards these goals that I had to overcome. But you know what? I overcame them and you can too. So if you're struggling with a goal or a dream that you have and you are not sure how to get through that barrier that, that is keeping you from accomplishing that, that goal, right? Let's talk. Let's, let's get together. Let's have a talk. We will hash it out on a video call face-to-face. -face. We will discuss the goals you have. If you don't have goals or you don't know which goals, we, we will identify those goals for you. We will identify your end destination in life, where you want to be career-wise, personal-wise, you name it. Um, and then we will set up an action plan for success. An action plan is going to have milestones to achieve your goals. Those goals achieve your end destination. To achieve those milestones, we have baby steps. That is the process. That is a high-level process of what we will do. So if that sounds interesting to you, that sounds like something that will help you and benefit you, head on over to zigbits.tech uh, and check out the Work With Me tab to find all the details. Hey friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets, that's going to close out this episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast on wireless QoS design. 
Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit zigbits.tech to join the conversation and access today's show notes. Today's show notes will be at zigbits.tech slash 35. If you liked what we discussed today, if it inspired you, resonated something within you, or provided a level of real-world context at any point, please let us know. You can find us on all of the socials. That's Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook by searching for ZigBits. There's also links in the show notes to all three of those. As always, you can you can email us at feedback at zigbits.tech, and I do read every email. So go ahead and email. I will read it, and I will reply back. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another episode where we will continue to provide you with the real-world context around technology. Bye for now.